History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp Therapy Online. Life doesn't come with a user manual, so when life stops working for you, it's pretty normal to feel stuck. Imagine somebody who spent, oh, say, 25 years being really distracted, overwhelmed by clutter, and fluctuating between being really into obscure ancient history and not being able to find the motivation to do the dishes. That person is me, and apparently, if there were a user manual to life, it might have told me that I have ADHD and should talk to my doctor about that. Therapists are about as close to a manual as we can get. Folks who are trained to help you figure out challenging emotions and learn coping skills. BetterHelp has connected millions of people with licensed, registered therapists for convenient and secure online therapy. It's convenient and 100% accessible online. No waiting rooms, no traffic, and not even endless googling of therapist near me. You just fill out a questionnaire and get matched with an appropriate therapist. And if it doesn't click, BetterHelp makes it easy to switch providers. Everyone deserves to feel their best, so get unstuck with BetterHelp. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com persia. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Persia. Africa is a land with endless stories to tell. From epic battles, brilliant rulers, and the dramatic rise and fall of civilizations, join us on the History of Africa podcast to learn the oft-ignored stories of the African continent. From the sands of Cairo to the plains of Zimbabwe, and from the mountains of Ethiopia to the forests of the Congo, Find the History of Africa podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello everyone. Welcome to the History of Persia. I'm Trevor Cully, and this is episode 48, What is Your Profession? You just heard from the History of Africa podcast, which I highly recommend as it works through the history of a whole, massively under-discussed continent. So far, he's done the Old Kingdom of Egypt and is working his way through ancient Ethiopia, with the promise of more, even less well-known stories on the way. So January wasn't my month. In addition to a whole bunch of real-life happening, reapplying to a new master's program, and a poor home improvement decision that resulted in me falling flat on my ass, I lost about three and a half hours of audio recording due to a computer-slash-technical error. I've done a lot of re-recording, and things should start trickling back out of the history of Persia in a semi-timely manner. As it stands, the next installment of the Gothas should drop this week and wrap up next week. A remastered version of my 300 review on Patreon should release just after this episode. The next episode of the regular podcast will come out, and then we'll get to my review of the 300 sequel, Rise of an Empire, whatever that actually refers to. 
Last time on this podcast, we covered Xerxes' preparations for war in Greece as he assembled one of the largest land armies ever mobilized in 481 BC. They built bridges, dug canals, assembled a navy of 600 ships or so, and a gradual snowball effect rolled across the empire until 200,000 warriors from across Persian territory found themselves in southern Macedon, poised to cross the river and invade the land we call Greece. This time, we're going to cross that border and wind the clock back to 490 and the immediate aftermath of Marathon to see how the Greeks were preparing, because the return of the Persian armies was not a secret, it was only a matter of time. But before I get to that, I do have to remind everyone that we are just two episodes away from the episode 50 Q&A. To celebrate 50 episodes and two full years of the history of Persia, you can ask me any question you want, and I'll try my best to find you an answer. Ask about ancient Persia, history in general, this podcast, podcasting in general, or even me personally, and I'll answer all your questions for episode 50. I've got some questions in the script already, but I'd love to have even more, so send them my way. You can reach me through the contact page at historyofpersiapodcast.com, email historyofpersiapodcast at gmail.com, or go through social media. On Facebook and Instagram, I am at History of Persia Podcast, and on Twitter, it's just at History of Persia. And as always, if you know where to find me somewhere else, or you are a Patreon supporter, you can message me through those platforms as well. Okay, with that out of the way, let's return to Marathon. Last time this podcast was in Greece was in episode 38, The Last Battle, where the Athenians scored a soaring victory and the Persians suffered a mildly irritating defeat. The great Athenian general to emerge from that battle was Miltiades, a former tyrant from the Chersonese who blew all of his newfound political capital on a failed invasion of the island of Paros, and subsequently died in a debtor's prison. If you want to brush up on Athenian history before that, you can look a little further back at episode 32, or head over to the Casting Through Ancient Greece podcast for a much more detailed history of Athens and its neighbors. Miltiades' failure ultimately opened the doors of Athenian politics to a new generation of power players, including his son, Cimon, who will play a significant role in this story as the war progresses. But most importantly for now, it opened the doors for a man named Themistocles. Themistocles was from the class of people who benefited the most from the young Athenian democracy. He was not a member of the Eupatridae, the Athenian aristocracy, but he was intelligent and wealthy. As a result, he was well-placed to take advantage of the new system. He started practicing law and moved into a poor neighborhood where he positioned himself as a politician of the common man. Themistocles was one of the first major Athenian leaders to take advantage of its naval strength. By the start of the 5th century, Athens had developed a strong navy, and as soon as he was old enough, Themistocles planned to campaign for the position of eponymous archon on that naval platform. In 493, at the age of 31, he was elected. The minimum age was 30. 
he began construction of a new harbor and put resources into the navy. Conveniently for him, naval military power relied largely on the mass mobilization of poor Athenians to crew the ships, and thus placed more influence further down the economic ladder, i.e. his own base of supporters. This was much to the chagrin of the Eupatridae nobles, who constituted most of the ancient Greek infantry, those hoplite warriors in their heavy armor and long spears. After Miltiades was prosecuted and imprisoned in 488, Themistocles moved into his position as Athens' natural political leader. He was challenged by Aristides, who positioned himself as the champion of the Eupatridae. The prosecution of Miltiades also brought another new player to the Athenian political system. Technically, this one had been around since the democratic constitution was first implemented, but it wasn't until 487 BCE that it was first used. This was the ostracism, a legal process in which every eligible voter cast a vote for one man to be exiled from Athens for a decade. These early ostracisms seem to have targeted Themistocles' enemies, and in the late 480s, Themistocles' supporters punched Aristides' ticket. In 483, a large vein of silver was discovered in the Athenian silver mines, and Themistocles wanted to take this newfound money and use it for the navy. Aristides tried to take a leaf out of his rival's playbook and suggested giving the money to the Athenian people. Knowing that the masses were fickle and wouldn't take Persia as an immediate threat, Themistocles argued that they desperately needed ships to combat Aegina, the island city they were currently at war with. That logic easily won over the assembly, and Themistocles got his navy. Aristides was sent into exile the next year. The major battle between these two men was over the implementation of that navy. Themistocles apparently sought to position Athens as the naval defense for all of Greece in the face of a looming return of Persian aggression. His aristocratic rivals resisted this in an attempt to preserve the importance of the hoplite class. Despite their best efforts, Themistocles built his ships and had them ready when the Persians started to set sail. The next year, in 481, with the Persian army actively on the march, Themistocles headed an Athenian delegation to the city of Corinth for a congress of about 70 Greek city-states to make a plan and combat the oncoming invasion. It was a genuine feat of unity and organization for the Greek city-states. In addition to representing 70 different independent governments, several of the polis present were actively at war with one another, like Athens and Aegina. After some debate arguing over tactics and command, about 30 members of this congress came to an agreement. They formed an alliance, with the city of Sparta providing official military command. While some of their rivals wailed and moaned, and the city of Argos even sided with Persia, there was never any real contention that the Spartan kings would command the land army. The navy was subject to more debate. Themistocles tried to claim the naval command for himself, but Athens' rivals refused to accept that, and eventually they agreed that a Spartan commander would officially lead the navy as well. However, as Athens provided the largest section of the fleet, some 200 ships in all, Themistocles was the de facto commander anyway. By and large, the 30 city-states that joined were located in the south of Greece, 
and most of those were in the Peloponnese, loyal to Sparta. The nearly 700 other Greek cities that comprised the so-called Greek world remained largely neutral, awaiting the outcome of the war. Others were occupied in their own territory, like Syracuse in Sicily, preparing for a war with Carthage, already conquered by Persia, like the cities of Ionia, too far away, like those in Iberia and modern France, or planning to submit, like many cities in Thessaly, in the north of Greece. These 30 cities formed what historians have called the Hellenic League, although Herodotus just called them the Hellenes, the Greeks in actual Greek. Many historians also refer to them as the Allies, in the same vein as the factions of the World Wars, which points to a somewhat obvious bias toward the Greeks in many modern historians. After this first congress, though, the individual members of the newly formed League went home and made their own preparations for war. Now, we've been bumping into the Spartans for a while now. First, Croesus called on them, and they didn't show up to fight Cyrus. Then Aristagoras tried to get their help back in 498, they considered it, and ultimately refused to show up in support of the Ionian Revolt. In 490, they were supposed to support Athens at Marathon, but the religious festival of the Carnea prevented them from sending troops. Now, in 481, they made a firm commitment to defend Hellas against the Persian invasion, as the official military commanders of the overall force. But really, outside of the guys who don't fight the Persian, who are these Spartans, and why have you heard of them? Well, part of the reason you've heard of them is because Gerard Butler married Cersei Lannister, teamed up with Faramir and Magneto, and then fought the Persians while everyone was mostly naked in 300. That or because edgy people online talk about how badass they were, also because of 300. They've also inspired a lot of bumper stickers with Corinthian helmets on cop cars and AR-15s, but maybe more about that some other time. Basically, they're famous today for things that haven't happened yet at this point in our narrative, but they were already laying the foundations for that fame. I covered some of their recent history back in episode 32, but only surrounding Cleisthenes, the king who rejected Aristagoras and the Milesians' call for aid. At that point, I focused more on the history of Athens because they were more involved. Today, I'm going to give Sparta the same treatment. Obviously, just in the back half of this episode, I won't be able to go into complete detail about the whole history of a very unique culture. If you want more information about the Spartans, the aforementioned Casting Through Ancient Greece podcast is a great option, and there is even a dedicated Spartan history podcast, which will also have links in the episode description. So it all starts with the goddess Gaia, the literal Earth herself, the primordial progenitor of all life. And no, I'm not actually going to run through the whole Greek mythological history because this isn't that type of podcast. But the point is, I could if I wanted. The Spartans usually called themselves Lacedaemonians after the region they ruled, rather than Spartans after their capital city. They traced their lineage back to two different legends. One, the famous Trojan War, and two, an event called the Return of the Heraclidae. 
Sparta figures heavily into the origins of the Trojan War, according to myth. Helen, of Golden Apple fame, was the wife of Menelaus, the king of Sparta, and it was Menelaus who spurred the Greeks to action, usually called the Achaeans in the works of Homer. Helen ran away with Prince Paris of Troy, sparking a ten-year war between the cities of the Achaeans and the city of Troy, also called Ilium, hence the Iliad. Of course, only the barest bones of that story have any facts to tie them to history, and one of the more legendary elements is the role of Sparta. In the Bronze Age, when the story of the Trojan War is set, Sparta was a very minor settlement in the Peloponnese, that little square peninsula in southern Greece, a region otherwise dominated by the great palace city of Mycenae. It was only in the Greek Dark Age, as the Bronze Age transitioned to iron, that Sparta gained any real notoriety, and Mycenae declined. Then there's the return of the Heraclidae. According to legend, the Heraclidae were the sons of the demigod Heracles, Hercules to Romans and modern Disney. They had been exiled to the north of Greece, in the region of Macedon and Thrace, but during the Dark Age period, they returned, pillaged their way through northern Greece, and conquered the Peloponnese, leading to the foundation of Sparta as we know it in the historical period. The return of the Heraclidae, even in antiquity, was associated with the sudden appearance of the Doric dialect of ancient Greece. I've mentioned the different dialects before, way back in episode 6, introducing Ionia, but the important thing to note is that northern Greece was basically divided straight up the middle, with Doric prominent in the west and Aeolic dialects in the eastern region called Thessaly. Southern Greece had other dialects, and then Doric picks back up in the Peloponnese, but not in the region of Arcadia, basically the center of the peninsula. Arcadian Greek predates Doric in the region, and was also spoken on Cyprus, probably a leftover from the Mycenaean. Doric is also strikingly different from other Greek dialects. Not different enough to be its own language, but enough to think that it had a very different developmental history. Until very recently, many historians subscribed to the idea of a Doric invasion, in which the Doric speakers invaded southern Greece, giving rise to the myth of the Heraclidae. Today, that's being reconsidered as anything from an invasion to a slow migration, isolated linguistic developments during the Dark Age, or even the idea that it was the language of the common people and had always been there underneath the Arcadian dialect. This is important mostly because it shows how the Spartans were even ethnically seen as just a bit different from other Greeks. The Spartan kings also tied their legitimacy to these Doric Heraclidae. After taking control of the Peloponnese, the Heraclidae divided into the various warring city-states of the region. Sparta, on the other hand, developed a unique system of dual monarchy, with two kings ruling simultaneously from different lines of a previously united royal house. One was traced back to a king named Agi, and was called the Agiad House. The other went back to Eurypontus, and was called the Eurypontid House. If much later histories are to be believed, these lines were established around the late 10th century BCE. They warred with their neighbors, 
eventually establishing themselves as the dominant force in the region. But part of this process was also the establishment of another unique institution. It wouldn't be beyond the pale to call it a peculiar institution. King Agis I is credited with subjugating the native inhabitants of Laconia, the region around Sparta, and turning them into the first Helots. The early Helots were simply slaves to their Spartan conquerors, but probably remained bound to their land, which was now owned by the ruling class of those Spartans. But even with this newfound place of prominence, the Spartans were odd, but not more militant than the rest of Greece. According to much later histories, they lacked any specific rule of law beyond their despotic kings, and lived in violent chaos until a younger scion of the Eurypontid dynasty named Lycurgus was given absolute power over the Spartan legal code. With a little help from the prophetess at the Oracle of Delphi, Lycurgus is credited with establishing the Spartan Constitution as it was known in classical Greece. Modern historians debate whether or not Lycurgus is an entirely legendary figure or a historical lawmaker who had later laws attributed to him. It's easier to explain the Spartan constitution as if he were real, because we have no real way of knowing what the actual slow development process looked like. Much like Solon in Athens, Lycurgus is credited with establishing a citizen's council, a legislative council called the Gerousia, which was made up of 28 leading Spartans and met with the kings to decide on the most pressing issues of the day. The idea was that a small council could balance between tyranny and mob rule with a more oligarchical approach. 130 years later, the executive power of the kings was given over to a council of five elder Spartan statesmen called the Ephor. This left the kings as the judicial and military, as well as the public and actors of the other branches' policy. Lycurgus also instituted land reforms to divide the conquered territory of Laconia and the land immediately surrounding Sparta among the citizens. The 30,000 or so Spartans got equal shares of the land to pass down to their descendants. The Helots, living on that land, were officially bound to their plots, making them more like serfs than slaves, and treated as state property rather than the chattel of individual Spartans. Supposedly to force the internal innovation and deter theft, Lycurgus is also said to have banned silver and gold coinage, replacing it with worthless iron coin. This is one of the more improbable laws attributed to him. First of all, he predates the first known coinage in Lydia. And second, this law doesn't seem like it lasted very long. Before too long, our narrative will have Artaxerxes I sending boatloads of golden Dariks to Sparta. More likely, Sparta was just a late adopter of the idea of currency and developed an odd reputation. This is tied to a wider Spartan tradition of living off only the necessities and avoiding indulgence, whether financial, dietary, architectural, or linguistic. As a result, Spartan is used in modern English to describe a sparsely furnished space or diet, and laconic, from Lacedaemonian, is used to describe the short, dry speech patterns and witticisms. But most importantly, 
Lycurgus gets credit for inventing Spartan myth. The only citizen boys exempted from this system were the elder sons of the kings, who received training for the succession in its stead. From age 7, Spartan boys received both physical and civil education in a school system called the Agoge, where they lived communally under their instructors rather than their parents. They were taught both to take a beating and to become sneaky and deceitful through their training regimen, to become excellent hoplite soldiers and commanders, but they were also instilled with an abiding loyalty to the Spartan state, partially through a partnership with an older man who acted as a mentor, and it is usually implied that there was some degree of pederasty involved in this relationship, something not terribly uncommon in the ancient Mediterranean. At age 20, Spartan boys could start graduating from the Agoge to mess halls called Sisitai. These would be the communal living and dining halls that were home to all young Spartan men, and where they would eat their meals for the rest of their lives. To be accepted into a Sisitia, the young man had to receive 100% acclamation from its sitting member. If that was not achieved within a few years, a young Spartan man was stripped of his citizenship and became a Spartiate. Spartiates were non-citizen Spartans who could not participate in civic life, but did serve militarily, though still separate from the full citizen. Once in a Sicitia, Spartan men began their military service in earnest. They were not farmers, craftsmen, or merchants. Their primary duties were to defend Sparta and live off the profits of the estates worked by the Helots. The Helots were also their primary enemy and threat. Spartan society was constantly militaristic because the wealth of Spartan citizens was wholly dependent on subjugating the Helot slaves and preventing them from rising up. As a result, the drilled and trained army, a rarity in the ancient world, was never willing to stray too far from home at the risk of exposing Sparta to a slave rebellion. Men would typically not marry until they were 30 or so, and it was seen as their duty to continue their family lines and produce more Spartans to run Spartan society and fill Spartan ranks. However, women were not oppressed, at least not nearly to the degree seen in other parts of Greece. Spartan girls received a public education and athletic training, just without the martial teachings of their male counterpart. Women could hold and trade property independent of their male relative, and had rights to legal representation, all things lacking in, say, Athenian society. Property ownership in particular, much like the dukshish back in Persia, provided a degree of economic and political power not often seen by women in the ancient world. The girls, too, were instilled with a deep loyalty to Sparta itself and the continuity of Spartan bloodline. It was not unheard of for married women to act as surrogate mothers for unmarried men, allowing them to produce rightful heirs. As you might imagine, 30,000 plots of land were divided up and eaten away fast in a culture obsessed with producing more sons and daughters to inherit and divide those plots. As a result, not long after Lycurgus's life, Sparta entered a period of aggressive expansion, first invading their neighbors in Messenia in an event called the First Messenian War. Like they had in Laconia, they conquered Messenia 
and subjugated the inhabitants as Helot, dividing up the land just as Lycurgus had done to generate property for new generations of Spartan. The second Messenian was to put down an uprising of these new Helot, in which Sparta also crushed their allies and made it clear that Sparta would be the dominant power once and for all. Over the following 150 years from 650 and the end of the war in Messenia to 500 BCE, the Spartans fought with all of their neighbors and either conquered or made deals with each of them, except for the small city of Argos to their southwest. Argos would remain a perpetual rival and antagonist to Sparta for the rest of the classical period. In 494, Argos was defeated by Sparta, and the Agiad king Cleomenes had all of the captured hoplites slaughtered, an act of cruelty that both engendered additional ill will against Sparta and weakened Argos severely, potentially saving the Spartans in 480. Argos went on to side with Xerxes as he approached Greece, but had not yet raised enough new troops to be an effective threat in the Peloponnese. The cities they could not subjugate outright were forced to join an alliance known as the Peloponnesian League, in which Sparta could call on them for military aid, and they would be obliged to provide it, but they could not call on Sparta to do the same. By 500, we're mostly caught up to the events described back in episode 32. The Europonted king Demaratus was forced into exile by his Agiad counterpart Cleomenes. Demaratus's brother, Leotikidas, took the Europonted throne, and then Cleomenes became the target of his political rivals as well. There was a scandal suggesting that Cleomenes was the bastard son of another man, rather than the previous Agiad king. Cleomenes was subsequently imprisoned and replaced by his cousin Leonidas in 490 BCE, just before the Athenians called for aid at Marathon. It would have been Leotikidas' turn as the Spartan king in charge of military during the Congress of 481, but Leonidas was doubtlessly involved as well as he would take command of the Spartan army the next year, when the Persians were actually on the offensive. As Xerxes and the Persian army were crossing the Hellespont in the spring of 480, a second congress was convened. A delegation from Thessaly, the northeastern corner of Greece, which would be invaded first, suggested the Vale of Tempe as the first line of defense, right on their border with Macedon. Technically, it was a year for the Olympic Games, a time when Greek cities were supposed to lay down their arms and declare a general truce. But everyone seems to have decided to set that aside in the face of a larger and more practical threat. Themistocles and a Spartan sub-commander took an advanced force of 10,000 allied troops all the way to the Macedonian border to intercept the Persians and hold the line. It was at this time that the two spies I described in the last episode were captured in the Persian camp. They were shown the camp, told the size and scope of the Persian invasion force, and sent home unharmed, where they went to the Greek commanders and bewailed how hopelessly outnumbered they really were. The Greeks still didn't have a choice but to defend or surrender, so Themistocles' men took up positions in the Vale of Tempe. However, King Alexander I of Macedon sent word to the Greeks and told them that the Persians already knew about a path through the mountains, which would allow them to circumvent the veil altogether. 
exposing the Greek rear and pinning them in the narrow pass. After some deliberation, the Greeks ultimately determined that they had to abandon Thessaly for the time being. This could have been Alexander I acting out of genuine support for Greek allies. However, Alexander could also have been the one who told Xerxes about the path through the Vale in the first place, just to get these 200,000 foreign soldiers out of his land as they ate their way through Macedon's already scarce resources. Fortunately for the cities of southern Greece, most of those in the Alliance, there was another narrow pass even better suited to their purpose. An extremely narrow pass between the cliffs and the ocean was the only suitable point to move a large force into Attica by land. A pass called the Hot Gate, or Thermopylae in Greek. There was even a natural choke point for the navy nearby, at the Straits of Artemisia, between the northern tip of Euboea and the Greek mainland. The Greeks resolved to hold the pass at Thermopylae by land and blockade Artemisium by sea. As a result, the Persians moved through northern Greece largely unimpeded, accepting earth, water, and tribute as they went and rounded Mount Olympus, home of the Greek gods, on their way to Thermopylae. Their progress was slow, as they had to subjugate dozens of independent city governments rather than one central king in rough terrain, and it took until August of 480 before Xerxes and his army reached Thermopylae itself, probably just under 200,000 strong by now. The Greeks recognized how tenuous their position was, and plans were drawn up to retreat to the Isthmus of Corinth and evacuate Athens, which everyone knew was slated for Persian retribution after scorning the great kings not once, but three times in the last 40 years. Despite that worst-case scenario planning, the Greeks were still determined to halt the Persian advance at the Hot Gates and moved to meet them. Unfortunately for this Greek alliance at large, it was August, dead in the middle of the Carnea, the Spartan religious festival that had prevented the Spartans from sending aid to Marathon a decade earlier. Everyone else in Greece may have set aside the Olympic troops, but Sparta would not give up the Carnea, even at the 11th hour. Instead, Leonidas was given permission from the citizen councils to take his personal bodyguard of 300 Spartan men to Thermopylae, where he would act as the supreme commander of the Greek forces. Typically, the Spartan royal bodyguard was comprised of 300 of the best young men fresh out of the agoge. But Leonidas set aside that tradition and refilled his ranks with 300 veteran fighters. The fact that he made that call is either a later legend propagated by Herodotus, or a suggestion that Leonidas himself was not expecting the front line at Thermopylae to survive the Persian assault even before the battle began. Leonidas set out with his 300 Spartan citizen hoplites, about 900 Spartiates and non-citizens called Perioikoi, between three and 4,000 troops from other cities in the Peloponnesian League, and possibly as many as 900 helots to support the Spartans. An additional five to 6,000 troops joined them from the rest of southern Greece, with a final tally somewhere just north of 10,000 men, Leonidas' army blockaded the southern end of Thermopylae. 
Meanwhile, Themistocles and Eurybides of Sparta put 127 Athenian triremes into action, combined with the fleets of all other allied cities to sail 280 warships up to the Straits of Artemisium. And with that, the stage is set for three of the most famous days in military history. Next time, we will pick up at the start of the battles of Thermopylae and Artemisium, before the armies of Persia ultimately swat the Greek flies buzzing around their path and push on to Athens. Between now and then, if you want more information about the podcast, you can go to historyofpersiapodcast.com. There you will find things like maps to go along with all of these events, the Persian family tree, and the support page where you can find information about financially supporting the show, like one-time support payments and the monthly Patreon subscription at patreon.com slash historyofpersia. The absolute best way to support the show is by spreading the word. Go on social media, find me at History of Persia Podcast on Facebook and Instagram, or History of Persia on Twitter, and share the show with your friends and family on social media. It is the best way to help this podcast grow. You can also leave reviews on your podcast platform of choice. Apple, Podchaser, Podcast Addict, they all have great room systems now. I always appreciate your feedback, and I look forward to hearing from you. Remember to send in questions for the episode 50 Q&A, and in the meantime, thank you all so much for listening to the History of Persia. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.